Well, New Hope Eugene, uh, once again, welcome. My name is Brandon, and uh, I have one of the—I uh, have the privilege of being one of the pastors on staff. So great to have you. Uh, our pastor Aaron is uh, away with his family, getting some much-needed and well-deserved rest. And so, if you're joining us online, welcome. I received some statistics and some analytics, even those around the world who are joining us. Online And so when Pastor Dwayne prayed for those around the world, he wasn't kidding. Uh, so excited about that. Would you do me a favor? If you brought a Bible, we're going to be in First Peter. If you have a Bible on your phone, we'll have, some, we'll have it on the screen as well, but maybe you um, read your Bible digitally. Uh, again, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in week three of our series. And again, uh, we haven't made it even out of chapter one, and so we'll finish chapter one tonight. Our big idea for the series is this, in First Peter, in Jesus, we have a living hope that rewrites and redefines our identity by rewriting and redefining our past, present, and future. First Peter uh, is written not to address really any theological heresy. It was written by Peter uh, it seems to encourage men and women of the faith who were going through some tough times, who were disoriented in their faith. They were, they were searching, trying to grasp, uh, um, recapture their identity in Christ. They were going through some persecution. They were even in fear of their lives. This is a persecuted church. As we read this tonight, we have to remember this is a persecuted, scattered church that's been hit with some tough times. We could say it this way. They, they were once not a people. They didn't have an identity. They found an identity when, when they met Christ. And now because of persecution, they're trying to gain their equilibrium and their footing again in Christ. And Peter sits down to write them a letter of encouragement in this journey. It's what we know today as the book of 1 Peter, uh, the letter of 1 Peter. It's uh, known in theological uh, realms and kind of Bible college and seminary realms as a Catholic epistle, not Catholic as in Catholicism, but Catholic as in a general letter, as opposed to, Brandon, what do you mean by that? As opposed to the gospels or the prison epistles of Paul or the pastoral letters uh, or, um, you know, the different books of the New Testament. This joins the ranks of, say, James or First John or Jude as what are known as general letters or Catholic epistles. And so week one, if you'll remember, we talked about being exiles of heaven, being foreigners, being pilgrims in a foreign land. I wonder if you're a Christ follower in here, if you've ever felt like, like you're, you're wandering around in a foreign land, uh, and, and you're, but, but you've kept your eye on your homeland, heaven. You've never lost sight of heaven. And Peter uses three words in chapter 1. That, that Pastor Aaron hit on in, in week one. He used the word exile, the word pilgrim, and the word sojourner. He, he, he grabs kind of from his Jewish heritage and, and the imagery of the Old Testament, the children of Israel wandering around in, in the desert, searching for the promised land. And then last week, we talked about a living Christ makes a living hope 
possible. This is where we get the title of our series. This mystery, this living hope of salvation. In fact, verses three through five, I want you to hear them again before we get into our text tonight because it really sets up the rest of the chapter. These three verses, verse three, four, and five, are we, we could spend six months on these three verses right here. Peter says this, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for who? For you. For you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he transitions in verse 10. He says this, of this salvation, of this salvation that I've just talked about. I can see Peter writing with his scribe Silvanus that he talks about at the end of 1 Peter. And I, and I can almost imagine Peter kind of rocking back in his chair and, and telling his scribe Silvanus, you know what? I don't want to just pass over this idea of salvation. I want to drill down on this beautiful gift of grace that we call salvation. Let's just pause right here for a second, Silvanus. And he says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them... To who? To the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. To them, it was revealed that not to themselves, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Listen to this. Things which angels desire to look into. That's an amazing statement. Of this salvation. We talked last week for a few minutes about this expansive nature of salvation, something that theologians for generations, centuries have, have tried to get their, their minds around. The salvation of Jesus, his work on the cross. I read a book by Lewis Schaefer with the title simply Salvation, And in it, he outlines what he describes as the threefold message of the cross. Very, very simple. And he, he says it, it really is a message of love. It's a message of sin. It's, it's a message of righteousness. He says it's, it's a message of love that Jesus loved us so much that he died for us. It's about sin. It's about our sin. And it's about Christ's love covering our sin. And it's also about righteousness. It's about his righteousness and our unrighteousness. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be called the righteousness of God. And we would say to that in response, Oh man, Lewis, that's incredible, the threefold message of the cross, right? But then we would pause, hopefully, and we would say, Wait, Pastor Brandon, Lewis, it's not just the threefold message of the cross, right? It's the fourfold. Wait, it's the fivefold message of the cross. It's the tenfold message of the cross, the fiftyfold message of the cross. 
It's not just love and sin and righteousness, <laughs> but it's peace and freedom and forgiveness and direction and presence and wisdom and healing and so much more. I was given a book written by John Piper, this small little read with this big title, and it says this, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. It's not just the threefold message of the cross. Piper would say it's the 50-fold message of the cross. When I was in seminary, my theology professor, Dr. Larry Shelton, he wrote a book called The Cross and the Covenant, which was our theological text for that class. And he, it, it, this really is his life's work to get his, his brain around this idea of, of atonement theology. Atonement meaning the work of Christ on the cross. This beautiful salvation. And Peter says, of this salvation that Schaefer would say the threefold message. Piper would say the 50-fold message. Dr. Shelton would say, I'm gonna give my life's work to try to figure out this incredible, beautiful, eternal work of Jesus. And Peter comes along and says, of this salvation. He says, the prophets of old, they had the same spirit that abides in us, was abiding in them. And he was speaking to, to them about this grace of salvation that they, they, they would prophesy about. He let them know that they were prophesying about a grace to a current generation that would apprehend future generations. And I just have this question for us in response to that. Think about that. Hundreds of years these prophets gave their lives for a message that they wouldn't see. It would be future generations. Are we willing to give our lives? Are we willing to contend for future generations knowing that our blood, the fruit of our blood, sweat, and tears, we won't see? I want us to imagine this, New Hope Eugene. <laughs> The Holy Spirit coming to the prophets of the Old Testament and saying, oh, I'm sorry, this, this grace, this Messiah, this salvation that I'm having you prophesy, it's, it's not for you. <laughs> it's for generations way down the road. But here's the deal. I want you to talk about it enthusiastically. Not only that, but I want you to give your life's work to prophesying and you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be hated, reviled. Most of you actually are going to be killed for your message. But I can also hear the Spirit of God saying to those prophets, if you're willing to contend for future generations, if you're willing to have the courage, if you're willing to be kingdom-minded enough, there will be millions of men and women whose lives will be enriched and blessed beyond belief because of your life and ministry. Are we willing to contend and fight for future generations? I want to drill down on this some more, friends, because it's, a, it's an important question. I, I think about Peter himself, who wrote 1 Peter. When, when on that day Jesus turned to Peter and he asked to borrow his boat, he said, Peter, can I borrow your boat? I'm, I'm kind of being crowded here off, off, out into the water, and I'd like to get on your boat and preach from your boat to these people. I wonder if Peter could see billions of people 
2,000 years in the future coming to faith in Christ, maybe by that one decision. I don't know that he could. I did some research when I was in school on the Welsh revivals. I have a Pentecostal background and upbringing, and so the Welsh revivals, any revival is of interest to me. And uh, Evan Roberts, 1904, 1905, in two years, friends, he reached over 100,000 people with the gospel. And millions of people today can trace their spiritual lineage back to the Welsh revivals. And I wonder if Evan Roberts could see all of that. I don't know that he could, but he was willing to invest in future generations, even though he couldn't see it. At the same time that was going on, the Azusa Street revivals were going on. There are some statisticians who would say that out of the Azusa Street revivals, some 600 million people can trace their spiritual lineage back to 214 Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles, California, before it ever became the Azusa Street Mission. And I wonder if William J. Seymour could see all that in the future. I don't think he could, but he was willing to contend for future generations. Peter says these prophets were not ministering to themselves, but to future generations. They were prophesying about this Messiah that would impact future generations. This idea of prophecy, friends, I don't want to leave this uh, too quickly. Fulfilled prophecy, this has been studied so many different ways. I wonder if you knew that the prophet Micah, he was writing some 700 years before the Messiah, before Jesus, and among hundreds of cities, provinces, townships, regions, even in his day, he designates Bethlehem of Judea as the birthplace for the Messiah. 700 years before the Messiah shows up. How about a prophecy made some thousand years before the Messiah were to arrive? It was prophesied that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Friends, listen to me. 800 years before the Romans got this brilliant idea that crucifixion would be a great form of capital punishment. 800 years. Malachi 3.1 penned this about 400, more than 400 years before Jesus. Specified that the Messiah, the Messiah would be a contemporary of this thing called the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, wasn't around when he, when he penned the words, but slips the Messiah to, in, in this, this point in history, this pin on the map, that it would be a contemporary of the temple in Jerusalem. What are the odds, friends? What are the odds that one person would fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament? This has been analyzed by brilliant theologians and statisticians and mathematicians for generations. I read some uh, stats from a, a couple of gentlemen uh, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman, they've joined Josh McDowell and others, and, and they've come up with this illustration. I think Pastor Aaron has used a similar one, and maybe you've heard it before, but for those of you who haven't, the idea that one individual could fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies, what are the odds of that? Now, there are about 60 specific prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. 
220, 250, 270 kind of outcroppings and variations of those prophecies, but 60 specific. The number that one person could, the odds that one individual could fulfill all 60 is just too massive a number. And so, and so these guys scaled it down to just eight. Okay, what, what would it take just for one person to fulfill just eight of the 60 very specific prophecies of the Old Testament? And here's the illustration. that The number is actually 10 to the 17th power. Get your mind around that one. The imagery is this. Picture the state of Texas and grab some silver dollars and spread those silver, silver dollars, I'd love to have this many, uh, throughout the entire state of Texas. Not just one layer deep, but two feet deep. And then blind, blindfold someone, have them grab a silver dollar and mark it somehow, let's say with a red pen, and throw it back into the pile and then take your great big Texas-sized stirring stick and stir all those silver dollars up. And then have them walk the, the, the length and width and height and breadth of the state of Texas. And at their choosing, whenever they wanted to, thrust their hand in, grab one silver dollar and pull it out and have it be the one that they had marked. Those are the odds that just one, that one individual would fulfill just eight of those prophecies in the Messiah. And Peter comes along, friends. Brandon, what's the point? Peter comes along and says, of this salvation, of this beautiful, miraculous, mind-bending salvation, of this salvation. And then he, he, he leads them to a response. He says, therefore, in verse 13, therefore, prior to that, he ends uh, the first part of our text. He says, because it's so incredible, because it's so beautiful, even angels desire to look into this. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Underline that, would you? Interesting phrase. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, underline it, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. In ancient times, if someone wanted to get somewhere quickly, if they were wearing a robe, they would have to kind of hike that robe up around their loins and tie it off. It wasn't a pretty picture, but if we're gonna get somewhere fast, that's what they would have to do. Uh, growing up, I played some sports. I know it doesn't, that may shock some of you. It doesn't look like I did. I was never really good at any of them, but I played one of the sports. I played baseball and I played, I played catcher. And one of the things that I, I had to uh, wear is what's called an athletic supporter. And no, that's not someone who supports athletics. And I, but, but, and I have these, these horror stories, memories of having to shop for an athletic supporter with my mom, if you could imagine. Why? Because our loins are a really important part of the human anatomy from here to here, right? Our loins are pretty important. And Peter, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. This word gird is actually only used once in the New Testament. 
It's an interesting word. In other words, Peter grabs a word to grab attention. Now, Peter was kind of a backwoods fisherman. The book of Acts says that he was uh, an uneducated common man. But he's sitting with Silvanus, who is his scribe, likely steeped in, in Greek language. And so I could see Peter kind of, again, rocking back in his chair. And he says, listen, I, I, I need them. I need them to understand what I'm about to say. So I need to grab a word that will grab their attention. And so Sylvanus kind of reaches into his, his, his Greek vocabulary and he says, Peter, is this the word? And Peter's, nah, that's not strong enough. And he, he reaches into his bag again and he pulls another word out and he's, Peter, would this be the word you'd want to put in your limb? Nah, it's not strong enough. So finally Sylvanus digs deep into his grab bag and he pulls out a word and he says, Peter, how about this word? And Peter says, that's it right there, gird. Gird up the loins of your mind. This, we would translate this, the imagery, friends, is this, to roll up your sleeves. It's a word that speaks to preparation and hard work and focus. Gird up, roll up the sleeves of your mind. We're in uh, an election year, and uh, there's something, at least in my lifetime, I know about our presidential candidates, senatorial, uh, congressional candidates, uh, whenever they're out on the, on the um, campaign trail, we're usually assured of their attire, and it's usually kind of a blue shirt and their sleeves rolled up, right? President Barack Obama, Mitt Romney when, when he ran, George W. Bush, so on and so forth, at least in my lifetime. Why? To show, hey, I'm with you, blue collar, hardworking, I'm focused. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. This salvation is so precious, so vast, beyond reckoning. I need you to focus. In all of your persecution, you're running for your lives. It's been a really bad day. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. So that, he tells them, so that you, some of you are being tempted so that you don't go back to your former lusts, he says. Rather, I want you to be holy. I had you underline that word holy. I want you to be holy. I think Pastor Aaron hit it in week one. This word holy or sanctification, kind of big churchy words. Really, it speaks to process. When we say yes to Jesus, it doesn't mean that we're automatically perfect or holy, but what it does mean is that we, from that day forward, we are in process. We're being made holy, being made more and more like Jesus. Here's another layer to that word holy. It's different. Be different. In other words, let's put it together, church. Peter comes along and he says, I want you to roll up the sleeves of your mind. I want you to focus. Roll up the sleeves of your mind because of this salvation and be different. Be different. Verse 17. He says, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, now, friends, we can't assume and we can't interpret this as meaning that we're, we're going to be judged according to uh, our works, like as if it's, if it's um, our salvation depends on works, in other words. I think if I understand the text, what Peter is saying is that if we return knowingly to those former lusts that we used to do ignorantly, we're going to be in trouble. He says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. I love that. It's the imagery of a sojourner, of a pilgrim. This is not our homeland, but we have our sights set on our homeland. 
He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Here it is, friends. He tells them, listen, you didn't buy this salvation with silver and gold, and you certainly didn't get it from your parents. You got all kinds of other wonky stuff from your mom and dad, but you did not get this salvation from your parents, and you didn't buy it. Rather, he says, look at verse 19. Here's how you got it. But with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Before the foundation of the world. Friends, I want to just stretch our theological minds just for a second. Jesus was a redeemer before he was a creator. Brandon, what are you talking about? We go all the way back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. And as much as we talk about creation and the awesomeness of that, and we should, Jesus was a redeemer before he was a creator. From the foundation, before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 20. 21, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, since you uh, have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, here it is again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word, underline it, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Peter's about to use two different words for the word word. He uses the word logos and he uses the word rhema. Really the distinction between these words, logos, if you can imagine it, which is the word that we just read, it's it's kind of the big block. We would understand it today as, as maybe the Bible, the entire council of the Bible that you have in front of you. And the rhema would be like a chip off the old block. It would, be, it would be, many of you have been reading the Bible, and you're immersed in the context, maybe the children of Israel, and, and you know what God's doing there, and then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes along. Have you experienced this? Where the Holy Spirit goes, oh, that's a word for you, for your life today, and what you're going through. That's a rhema word off the logos word that I'm going to tuck in your heart. He goes on, verse 24, because, and he borrows from Isaiah, Isaiah 40. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word, the rhema, the word of the Lord endures forever. And then he says this. I love how he ends the chapter. He says, now this is the word, the rhema word, which by the gospel was preached to you. Listen to it in the message, this last part of verse 25. God's word goes on and on forever. This, the word that conceived the new life in you. Brandon, what was the word that conceived new life in those that Peter was writing to? What's the word that conceived new life in me? How about this? Jesus loves me. This I know. How about this, friends? I'm more broken than I, I could ever imagine. We sang about it tonight, those broken pieces that I'm trying to offer to Jesus and yet more profoundly loved than I ever dared hope 
That's the word. That's the gospel. And it produces life in us of this salvation, friends. And Peter comes along because of this incredible, enduring grace of salvation. I want you to roll up the sleeves of your mind. It's almost as if Peter is grabbing them in all of their persecution and all of their doubts. Maybe some of them turning their backs on Jesus. And he turns them by the shoulders and he says, listen, this salvation is too important. I want you to roll up, gird up the loins of your mind and be different. It's too important. Why? Because those other things that you're being tempted to go back to, they're of corruptible seed. This is of incorruptible seed.